everybody, this is James. Thank you for listening to Around Grandfather Fire. We're bringing you a special archived episode tonight of our old podcast, The Jaguar and the Owl. It was episode 22 from back in 2014, where I interviewed Kelly Harrell about rune work and her runic calendar work. And she's coming out with a new book, which will drop September 11th, called The Runic Book of Days, which you can pre-order now on Amazon. And we're going to interview her this coming Wednesday, so look for that episode to drop of Around Grandfather Fire uh, somewhere around the 5th or the 6th. And uh, if you have any questions, you can email them to sarenth at gmail.com. You can email them to me at jim at thewanderingowl.com. You can find us on Twitter or on any of our other outlets. Or, of course, you can download the Anchor app from anchor.fm or from your favorite app store on Google or iTunes. And from that, you can leave us feedback or voicemail, which we can include in the show. So, hope you enjoy this archived episode. Father's Son, we call to you now, a few days after the summer solstice, the time of your greatest power. Intitaita, Father's Son, look down on us in favor. Help us to grow not only our crops, but our minds and our souls as well. Intitaita, look down on us in favor the small children of this earth, of Pachumama, and help us in good fortune, good favor, and good crops. Crops that can be shared with those around us. Crops of spirit and of physical sustenance. Do not take us with your heat, Intitaita. Do not parch us 
or make us waste away in your sunlight. Inditaita, please be generous and favorable with us and help us grow. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of the Jaguar and the Owl, coming to you from the Wandering Owl in Jackson, Michigan. I am your host, James Stovall, known by some as Two Snakes and by others as Shaman Jim. And if you're to listen to people from Pagan Fest like my friend Marcy, you can also throw in Birdman. And according to some of my friends on Facebook, you might even throw in Moondog. Because, you know, another nickname is never a bad thing, right? Sure, I can get this out. Maybe the first, like, five minutes of the show can just be me going through my nicknames. You guys can listen to that, right? Uh, uh, whatever. It doesn't matter. I hope it never gets quite to that extent. Uh, Thank you for joining me tonight. I am really excited to be back from a powerful and amazing Michigan Pagan Fest where Sarenth Odinson, Joy Weedmatic, and myself tended the sacred fire and did a lot of fabulous, amazing work. Uh, Things that I can't even imagine doing in any other circumstance with any other people. Just really strong work, really powerful healings. People's spirits were touched. um, And definitely a lot of spirits around that sacred fire. I had my first autograph request, which was a little bit of a strange thing. But it, it it was overall a very strong and very powerful sacred fire in a very powerful pagan fest in general. I'm I'm really excited to announce that they have asked me to come back as a local headliner next year, which means that I am put on par with uh, the expected main guests next year, which would be Janet Farrar and Gavin Bone. So that's a really good company to keep, and it makes me really excited that they would ask this of me. Uh, I'll probably end up doing a class on the sacred fire and how to tend or attend a sacred fire, what is sacred fire and what is its uses, what is it there for, and how can it be used most effectively. And also, once again, probably the Peruvian fire ceremony, because that seems to be a real favorite of people. Um, It was an interesting fire ceremony this year because we had a really large gusting wind all day on Friday. And the Pagan Fest had me do the Peruvian Fire Ceremony on Friday evening. And so I was worried all day. I kept thinking to myself, how is this going to work, right? We've got so much wind and so much... uh, just gusting, blowing, swirling wind, and I thought, this is this is going to be hard. And I started laying the foundation for the Peruvian fire ceremony, and um, was putting out various leaves and herbs and sticks, kindling uh, prayer leaves, and just doing everything I could. And, and the wind was just swirling around, and, and it was hard to keep things in the fire bowl, and um, quite a challenge to get that all assembled. And so people started to gather, and we all... Uh, stood around as I gave the instructions, and people followed them so well this year. It was just amazing. Everybody just got so quickly into the ceremony and into sacred space and altered state of consciousness. They did it really quickly and really effectively, and everybody was so loving and supporting of each other. It was just a fabulous experience. And then it was pointed out to me, after everything was said and done, that the wind had left somewhere when I was giving the 
prayers, calling to the different spirits that I call in, uh, the wind died down. The wind decided that it was going to give us that time to do that work, which was really amazing. Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, a layperson could call coincidence, but those of us who are really kind of thinking in a spiritual way know that there's no coincidences. The wind decided to give us that time and that space, and I was ever so thankful to be the facilitator for that event. It says all I am really is the facilitator. The spirits do all the work. The fire does all the work. The people there do all the work, and I'm just the one that brings the the knowledge um, how to do the ceremony. I'm the facilitator, and that's an amazing thing, and I'm really ever grateful for that opportunity. It went really well in the sense, too, that afterwards I had someone come up to me who had experienced Peruvian ceremony before. Someone who, when they were working with a group in the Ohio area, had a crew elder come and do fire ceremonies with them. And he gave me the largest compliment I think I've ever received when he said the the prayers that I used when I was calling the directions. They they made him really think of that that Keru native as he came and did the, the fire ceremonies for them. I, he said the prayers were done in such a way it was the same way. It had the same feeling, intent, and a lot of the same words, which huge honor to me. Huge honor to have someone with first-hand experience of a fire ceremony from uh, a Peruvian compliment me on my uh, ability to facilitate the fire. So huge compliment and I and I thank you very much for that and then another huge huge thing uh, a friend Kelly um, soon-to-be student Kelly not the Kelly that I'll be interviewing here in a few minutes but friend Kelly she brought me a stone from Machu Picchu and it is an amazingly powerful little stone almost knocked me over almost knocked Sarenth over I, I handed it to him in the sacred way so he could experience the energies and he he literally grabbed my arm so he wouldn't fall over and started going take it back take it back it was too much for him it was really astounding uh, so a lot of very complimentary uh, statements made, and, I, and I'm very thankful, ever so thankful for you guys. Anybody who was at the Peruvian Fire Ceremony at Michigan Pagan Fest, if, or anybody else for that matter, if you are in the mid-Michigan area, northern Ohio, northern Indiana, or anywhere on the east side of the country, really, uh, if you want me to come in and do a Peruvian fire ceremony for your organization, for your event, or for you personally, give me an email, jim at thewanderingowl.com or jim at thejaguarintheowl.com, and I'd be glad to talk to you about how we could make that happen. I do the fire ceremony for private groups and private events. And, you know, really, if you've got nine friends and you that want to get together and experience the fire ceremony, at your house, in your own leisure time, with no one else around, that's the way to do it. So get hold of me so I can help you figure out if that's a possibility for you. Um, something came up recently that I would like to point out as well. A lot of people didn't realize that if you go to thejaguarintheowl.com, not only are the archives for this uh, the show that I'll be broadcasting tonight and all previous shows on the jaguarintheowl.com, but there are also comments fields below hand, and I ask you and encourage you to go and comment on 
any show that you're interested in. If you've liked any of our guests, if you like one of the topics, if you want to do, know more, you can not only email jim at thewanderingowl.com or jim at the jaguarintheowl.com, but you can leave a comment right on the webpage for the jaguarintheowl.com for that specific episode. It's a WordPress inter- interface, so it's really simple to use. Also, ask you to go ahead and follow me if you're on Twitter. If you're a tweeter, follow me, James at the Owl on Twitter, and uh, ask you to follow me there. Opening prayer tonight, I I was calling out to Intitaita, Father Son, because it just felt like there is a, a time for renewal happening, a time for bright sunshine. It's a new year in a lot of ways, new summer harvests will be coming. We're starting to get the first harvest already here in Michigan, where I've been enjoying a lot of fresh strawberries. So I just thought it was appropriate to give thanks and to ask Father Son to come in and bless us. And um, I think that's about all I want to cover before I get to our guest. So I'm going to take a short break, and when I come back, I'm going to be joined by Kelly Harrell, the author of The Teen Spirit Guide to Modern Shamanism. I'll be right back. Rat! Rat! Where are you going? I'm going back to the paranormal view, back where I belong. Please, please take me with you no i'm through with everything here i want to see if there's something left in life i haven't explored do you know what i'm talking about oh red red don't run to them they talk about ghosts and hauntings ufos and all kind of supernatural scary stuff you'll never understand will you scarlet no well that's your misfortune red 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 if you go where shall i go what shall i do Frankly, my dear. Line. Oh, you've got to be kidding. That's the Paranormal View with your host, Henry Foister, Jeffrey Gould, Kat Cloco, and Barbara Duncan. Every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, exclusively on the Parax Radio Network. Well, welcome everyone back to the Jaguar and the Owl, and I am really excited tonight to have someone here to interview that I've been I've been looking forward to this interview for months and months now. The the person I have with us tonight, she is the one that if if you follow the Wandering Owl on Facebook, every Monday we're posting up the weekly rune, and the person who writes that article has also come out with a great new book. It's called The Teen Spirit Guide to Modern Shamanism, and the author is S. Kelly Harrell, and I am really glad to have her with us tonight. So welcome, Kelly. Well, thank you, James. It's great to be with you. I, I, like I said, I've really been looking forward to this, and I was really privileged to get the advanced copy to read of this book, and I was so excited, and I really kind of tore through it, and I have to tell you right up front, I really enjoyed it. Oh, I'm glad to. I was kind of nervous. I was wondering <laughs> what you would think. <laughs> no. We're kind of on the same page, and I was like, well, what if we're not on the same page? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, it was really nice. You know, I'll tell you, one of the things that I really liked about it is um, that even though it's called the Teen Spirit Guide, that it's not dumbed down. You know, with a metaphysics store, I see so many books that are geared towards teens or younger people, and they're just so dumbed down that I, if I was that age, I would have been insulted. Meanwhile, you've written a book where I'm very happy to to recommend to an adult or someone of any age because the the information is pertinent and the way you have it laid out makes a lot of sense. 
I'm glad to hear that. Thank you for saying. Uh, you know, I, I just think it's really important. I think it is too. And, and that was the spirit that I wrote it in. I, I did not set out to write a book about how to do shamanism. I, I did not at all think I would be that person. But when I could make the correlation that, um, you know, I was a teenager when this started for me and it was stressful, it was scary, and I didn't have anybody to go to about it. And when I could make that correlation in my own mind, I was like, okay, we've got a book here. Yeah, exactly. So uh, for those that have not seen the previews yet, and, and maybe jump the gun a little bit, how about would you describe the book in your own words? Let's hear it from the, the horse's mouth, so to speak. I feel like it's a really good introduction to modern shamanism across the board, not just um, journeying and technique, but into the role of shaman in in modern culture. And, um, you know, like I said, I wrote it from the standpoint of someone who awakened to this awareness as a teenager. I was 17 when it started chasing me. And, um, you know, that's kind of the spirit I tried to carry through. I feel like I work with enough adults and young people to kind of be able to communicate at, at whatever level is needed. And I feel like the book captured, you know, the ability to bring shamanism to a young adult audience, but to a young at heart audience as well. Mm, that makes a lot of sense, because that, that is really the hard part, isn't it? When you're younger, especially, you know, there's a lot of, we were talking about this at Pagan <clears throat> Fest recently, where uh, there's a ton of stuff out there on the internet, but not all of it's very good. Matter of fact, most of it's not very good. And, you know, but back in the day when we were getting started, there was just nothing. There right, was there was no internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And even right. the books were really limited. Yeah, they were. They were. And finding a mentor, hang it up. Yeah, I know it. I was what what I say mid twenties, I think, before I found my first mentor. That's yeah. That was just the way it went. You struggled and made your way along. And that is something that I want to point out about the book. You will not learn shamanism from a book. You won't learn it from my book. You won't learn it from anybody's book. And I say that really plainly, you know, several times throughout the book. But I believe what you can get from it is a really solid guideline for what works. You know, if shamanism is speaking to you, you know, what you can look for in a mentor. I think it's imperative that you find someone, preferably in your locale, but if not, someone even remotely that you can connect with as a mentor to kind of help you through. Yeah, Sarah and I have touched on that many times because it's not just a matter. The mentor might not be your final path. It might not be. Right. It might not be your mentor forever. But it's really important to have someone that you can bounce those ideas off and and have someone that kind of understands where you're coming from that won't give you that weird look all the time. Yeah, and you know, you and I know this, but you know, we didn't know this going in, and people now don't know it going in. But shamanism isn't what you're doing in the ecstatic moments, it's what you're doing all the rest of the time. And that's the part that, that gets absolutely no dialogue. I shouldn't say no dialogue, but very little dialogue until recently. And it, it doesn't get any coverage in most classes that people take. They don't talk about what you do with what you learn from those ecstatic spaces. And they don't talk about how it's going to change your life, even if you don't plan to be a shaman. 
just having gone into those spaces changes you and you don't go back to life the same. So I think it's really important to have somebody that you can bounce that stuff off of. Oh, well put. Yeah, that's really well said, too, that so many of the workshops and so many of the books, they're journey-centric. They're, uh, they talk about the, the fabulous experiences that you have, but those are, those are a fraction of someone's life, really. And fabulous can scare the pants off of you. You know, I mean, let's be honest. It, you know, people assume that when you're talking about um, ecstatic experiences that put you in a state of crisis or a state of stress, that we're talking about wounding or we're talking about trauma. But the truth is, sometimes ecstatic experiences are so awesome that they make going back to every day really hard. So, you know, there's just a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, there certainly is. Well, one of the things I really liked about the way that you laid that book out uh, is that you kind of cover this a little bit. You talk about some of your experiences. You give some modalities or some thoughts to exercises or things that people can do. And then you back it up with some very practical questions of what was that experience like for you. And so I kind of feel like the, the... target that you were going for was not replacing a mentor, but, but helping people that haven't found that mentor yet. Right. And some of those questions I wish I had been asked, you know, I wish I had, I wish I had been able to think enough out of my own experience to see it in a, in a depersonalized light and say, okay, are you really doing this? Is this what you really want to do? I don't remember which chapter it's at the end of. I think it's the second or third. I don't remember. But one of those questions is something along the lines of, um, can you make your inner temple disciplined? And that's like the money question to me. (laughs) You know, still, honestly, still it is. It's like, you know, every time things kind of level up. But there are just some questions in there that I, I wish I had been introduced to and paid more attention to early in my path. And that's one of them. Sure. And so you're saying, and I, at least I think what you're saying is that no matter how far you advance on this path, a lot of times it really boils back down to those basics of, can you quiet your mind? Can you live in the moment? Can you appreciate those things that are coming through? Right. And, you know, a lot of us kind of have a, a precious sort of attitude about being intuitive or, or the particular path that we're on, but, but can you discipline it? Can you bring it down to a, a, a way of living that really works for you and gives your life meaning, or do you just want to, you know, be the intuitive one in the crowd? Or, you know, there, there's a huge difference between realizing that you're aware and actually structuring life around it. Mm, Well put. So when you were coming up with some of the questions and the dialogue and the back and forth, were you basing this primarily off of past experiences, or were there actually some people you were bouncing these questions off of? I think it's both. I mean, there are definitely some some introspection in those questions, personal introspection, but, but also... You know, some of the things that just come up in in having worked with people, I've worked with other people for a little over 16 years, and there are patterns. I mean, certainly we're all unique in the things that we bring forward and how we experience them, but, but there are some patterns in how we trip ourselves up. And I think that's 
mostly what I tried to draw on in pulling those questions out. Mm-hmm. So would you mind talking a little bit about your own personal path and how you got to this point? Oh, what a paintball splatter. Uh, <laughs> um, I, for me, it did start out as being intuitive and I mean, very early, like, you know, kindergarten and um, just realizing early on that other people did not want to hear that. They either experienced it or they didn't. But either way, at that point in our development, culturally, people didn't talk about things like that. Mm-hmm. So I kind of set it aside for a long time until I was about 17 and then it um, it just kind of started talking to me in a way that I couldn't ignore anymore in, in personal needs, healing and so forth. But like you were saying, I was easily 26, 27 years old before I met someone who could sort of provide any kind of formal insight into that. I read everything I could and and worked on my relationship with my guides in that time frame. Mm-hmm. But it was a long time before I kind of had any real formal structure about it. And uh, now I, there's definitely a distinction between what is my personal path as a um, an animist and shaman, but also um, in how I work with other people. There is a distinction in terms of cosmology and, you know, presenting things in a more open way that I think people culturally relate to. Mm-hmm. You know, not scaring the pants off of them, in other words. <laughs> well, sometimes scaring the pants off of them can be useful. It can be. You're right. I mean, that's the, you know, not to, not to paint too pretty a picture about it, but there's times when scaring people off is a, is a good thing for them, really. I mean, this is not an easy path, or at, yeah. least, at least making them realize how serious it's going to be. I agree. I mean, there are some people who go the other extreme. Well, I had people, I think I talked to you about this months and months ago when I was first kind of conceptualizing the book um, in some dialogue that, you know, people were like, you're being irresponsible, giving young people the idea that they're ready for this, that this is something they can approach or that they're emotionally mature enough to handle this. And my response to that was, you know, they're already there. Right. I mean, we, we can either give them a compassionate guideline that helps them through it, or we can ignore it completely and create problems we all have to deal with later. But, um, yeah, I mean, there are definitely extremes. Some people hold the shaman stick a little too tightly, and <laughs> some people don't hold it tightly enough, maybe. Right. Yeah, I you know, when it all comes down to it, the spirits decide right isn't that the whole basis of shamanism either someone's getting approached by the spirits or they're not that's right so yeah i you know it's some the answer like so many things is somewhere in the middle isn't it It, Mm -hmm. it's it's one of those things where you have to look at everything on a case-by-case basis and as, as a friend of mine is wont to say just let go of your expectations and deal with what's right in front of you that's a big one isn't it though yeah it's one i'm still learning all the time i know no. That and the fact of how little I know when everything's all said and done as well. The more I learn, the less I know. Yeah, and you start all over. That's right. That's right. Back to being a newbie. 
So uh, those those early experiences when you first found your mentor, what were those interactions sort of like? How how did you decide that that was the the right mentor for you, and and how did those sort of things fit together? To be honest, there was nobody else. So it, it was it was kind of like um, go with this and be spirit led and just hope for the best because I, I was really in a position that I, I needed help at a personal level and I didn't go into um, working with this person thinking that I would be a shaman. I, I mean, I was highly aware of, you know, being intuitive and souls and all that stuff, but I, I didn't really plan in any way to do anything with it. I, I, I just didn't with other people. I mean, mm-hmm. and, um, and so it that that was about a six month progression of working on my own healing needs and um it's just kind of having my guide start saying okay um you've done this and you've you see how this works now at a personal level and you you can't sit anymore you have to get up and do something with it mm-hmm. so i think at that point um i realized what a lack of resources I had. Like, I mean, I knew that, but then I really like, just felt the heat of need and absolutely really no one I could engage with. And and even the person I met initially, um, I realized we had very different, I guess, cosmologies that I didn't really feel we could go any further. Mm-hmm. And so I really started sinking into the nature around me the guides, the totems of my region, and and that carried me for a long, long time. Interesting. So was it a matter of, with different cosmologies, it was just a matter of things where um, you could not, you had trouble reconciling his and yours or hers and yours, or, or how, what created the conflict there? I guess I just started to be led in a, in a wide open territory and the person that I worked with had very rigid boundaries. Okay. No, you do it this way. And yes, you have to turn this way. And if you don't turn this way, the ritual won't work. And, you know, and I respect that there's a lot of um, emphasis on ritual and on you know, boundaries. Frankly, we mm-hmm. all have to have our own boundaries for how we approach the spirits. And it, it was working differently for me, and I, I realized that for what it was and, and just kind of had to step away. But still, you, so you had a mentor, but it wasn't working out, but that, that still opened up more do- doors for you? Or were there techniques that you learned or something like that? How did? Well, I didn't really know went? where to go from mm, there. I, I mean, I just kind of dived into all kinds of different things at that point the the requisite stuff you know reiki the reconnection theta healing just all of the stuff that kind of gets lumped into this new age territory mm-hmm. and again you know I, I spent years going through all of that stuff and kind of coming out the other end going yeah it's not bad either <laughs> oh, wow but yeah you know, the I consistent thing was the runes that was probably the one consistent thing through all of it. I should have paid closer attention because now my path is very much um, druidic and safe, safer. So I should have listened <laughs> at the beginning. <laughs> Would you mind talking about that a little bit, about your relationship with the runes and those spirits? Because, you know, I, I have a lot of interaction with Sarenth, and I'm always curious. The, uh, his approach to the <laughs> runes is very 
powerful. I've experienced yeah. it firsthand, and his but his connection with them is just so strong. It's it's amazing, and I, I'm always curious how other people relate to those spirits. I I don't have a dialogue for that yet. It, it the runes were the only thing, as far as an external oracle, that worked for me. The mm. the tarot was was just totally foreign. I could never get a thing out of it. You know, um, and you know, even crazy stuff like Ouija boards and pendulums. I could touch that stuff and it would quit moving. Like, <laughs> you know, not even like I had a pulse moving. And I realized. That that was my guide saying, no, that's not the way for you to do it. But I, it, it just took me a long time to cultivate what would be that way. But I explored the runes for the first time when I was 19, I think. And, and they just sang. I mean, they were on from the first time I touched them. And you're going to laugh, but... Um, my first exposure to them was Ralph Bloom's work, which, which, you know, for what it needed to do as kind of an introductory, I guess, bag, it worked, but I didn't know enough about the runes at that point to differentiate where I was kind of breaking down with the runes and where I was breaking down with his take on the mm, runes. Right. And so I had a lot of conflict around that for a while because I would really intuitively feel what they were saying. But of course the book that he wrote said something different. Mm. And it, it, it took me a while to figure out that there were other resources and I don't know. It, it, it's just been a, a building relationship for a long time. Sure, I can understand that. Actually, I've got a copy of one of his books floating around somewhere. Now, there was one of the first ones that I started with with the runes because it, it was just so easy to find, and, and yeah. you know, they just a lot of people had a copy that they were willing to loan out. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, they might have been loaning out a copy, hoping it would never come back. But that's not uh, all together. It's kind of amusing because um, whoever his publicist is, when he released the 25th year anniversary last year. Um, she contacted me and said, you know, you, I see that you write the weekly, weekly room column and, um, we'd really love to have you review his work. And I, I was like, how in the world am I going to handle this? Cause I'm like, obviously she's never read <laughs> weekly room <laughs> <laughs> or she wouldn't be asking this or, you know, she doesn't know a thing about runes herself, which is always possible. But it was just a really, it was like full circle in some strange way. Yeah, I, I didn't do it. <laughs> I ended up not reviewing it at all. Yeah, we have to maintain our integrity, right? <laughs> you know, I, like I said, for what for what I needed it to fulfill at that right. time, no, it was fabulous. I understand. But, you know that we broke up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. So, back to your book for a brief moment. What was the most difficult thing? To get into that book, what was the part that really hung you up trying to get in there or that, that created any sort of uh, really retrofle- re- uh, uh, reflection that you didn't anticipate difficulty with getting into that book? Well, in all honesty, the whole thing, because, you know, like I mentioned, you know, Alice um, Grist, the publisher at Soul Rocks Books, we talked about, you know, she wanted to start this series of teen spirits. Um, earth-based and alternative paths specifically based around teens and young adults and I just thought well good luck with that and, 
another thing about it. And, um, you know, the more I, I was I was working out the tribe of the modern mystic at the time, which was actually a year ago in June. And the whole point of that community is people stepping into their intuition and connection with spirits through every day, not just, you know, reserving it for special occasions, but how to kind of be animists on the run. And um, it, I realized that that you know, I was 17 when that connection was kind of happening for me. And it was really triggering. I mean, even even immediately when I realized, okay, I get it. I have information. And I was like, I don't want to go back through that. I don't want to go back through how painful it was to not have anybody to talk to and to just spin in my own head about, you know, the things that were going on that really felt like they should have very logical explanations and meaning. And I just didn't have anybody there to, to help with that. And so, you know, initially to answer you, it was just all very triggering. The whole concept I just who wants to go back through their teen years on any level. <laughs> but again, I, I could connect with that energetically and say, well, nobody has to do that anymore. It doesn't have to be that horrific, painful baptism by fire at least not that way anymore. And once I got past that, the content came very easily. Um, probably the other part that I struggled with was how to deal with parents, mm. how, how to, you know, write in a way that parents will feel comfortable with their young people having this book and yet um, address the parental audience in a way that, retains their integrity also as parents, you know, because a lot of times when kids are investigating alternative paths, parents take an affront to that. They feel subverted. It's a huge ordeal. So I felt like I needed to be really respectful. Again, very triggering. (laughs) Sure, sure. Because uh, you're right. I mean, subversive. Uh, the, the, it's a sense of rebellion that the parents right. are getting, and for some, probably panic, because you know they're running off to doing something that's really evil or wrong, and so you have to address that in a very calm way in order to help soothe those fears. Well, I did my best. <laughs> no, I think, I think you did a very good job. Because I just was like, oh, I mean, it, that's the audience that's just terrifying, you know, a, a frightened parent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Was there any conflict in, with your own parents as you were starting off your path? Because that would put you right about the time of independence when all this stuff was hitting you so hard. <laughs> you know, it just happened that... A huge transition happened the summer that I turned 17, which included like three deaths in my close family and my um, my mother and my stepdad moving literally across the state. It was it was clearly, you know, a shamanic moment in my life. And so there were these natural scatterings that people weren't paying attention to what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) In really good ways and not so good ways, <laughs> but they weren't paying any attention to what I was doing. And so it, it actually gave me some freedom, you know, despite the lack of a mentor and feeling stressed about that. It gave me some freedom to explore what I needed to. But really, honestly, my mother knew from the time I was little that there was something else going on. 
And she never tried to suppress that. I mean, at least in my own home, she didn't know how to deal with it at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. And, and she's an extremely intuitive person herself. I think that under different circumstances, um, you know, that would have come in very differently for her also. But she never told me no. She never said, um, I don't believe you. None of that. So, you know, from that standpoint, I was very fortunate. Right. Yeah, because that's, that's a hard conversation to have, both as the parent yeah. as as the child, right? Yeah. I know I had someone in the store just this weekend, and they said they had a, a six-year-old that's seeing people and they didn't mm-hmm. know how to handle it. What do I tell her? And, you know, the even the problems that other adults are saying, oh, that's, that's all in your imagination and that uh, sort of thing. And How damaging. Oh, I know it. How Just completely punishing. And I think that's where yeah. a lot of people get into the, you know, mental illness and mental breaks from. I've been told so. from a young age that this is your imagination only. Right. That's all in that your head. That your reality isn't real. And, and you start getting into territory of seeing where the parents didn't, um, grow, or I'm not sure if that's the right word, but you know they didn't grow beyond that emotional container of it's in your imagination, and so you know their children will really struggle to get out of that container as well. Right. So I, actually, this book would present a, a good opportunity too for people who are the right age to reverse that conversation. They might come up, you know, the the children might come up with this book first and then present it to the parents to kind of say. This is what's going on. Do you think that's, that's a great way to look at it? I, I think that would be wonderful if it could open dialogue that way. If it could take some stress off somebody. Right. Yeah, I think that would be really nice to have that happen. Is there anything that you kind of wish that you'd gotten into the book, but you didn't quite have room for? <laughs> you know, one thing that I wanted to talk about is how the concept of teen doesn't exist. In tribal cultures. Oh, very good point. Yeah. I mean, I just couldn't fit it in there. I I just couldn't. It was kind of like an addendum or something. It it didn't fit the overall outline. And it would have been pushing the length that the publisher wanted for this series. But um, I think that's telling. You know, the fact that we have basically created this um, time frame outside of normal experience for lack of a better way to say it but you know the idea of teenager in tribal culture you know you're either a child or you are a contributing adult Mm -hmm. of the tribe yeah this middle ground where a lot of power is taken away from you yet a lot more responsibility is given to you is kind of strange isn't it and how's that working out for us exactly Exactly. Wow, that sounds like a conversation that you, I, and Ken Day could spend a lot of time on because of his post-tribal shamanism, I bet. I bet, yeah. Yeah. He's great to talk with. I haven't interacted with him terribly much, but I hope he's having a great trip. (laughs) I know it. Yeah, he's. uh, I just spoke with him earlier today. We're going to have him on for a follow-up interview here within a couple weeks, so that was kind of nice. So... One, I got to tell you, you know, like I said, I, I enjoyed the book very much. I like the structure of it, and I'll go ahead. I might as well go ahead and get it out now so we can talk about it. You know, there's only one thing that I really had a problem with in the entire book. Are you ready for this? Okay. And I know exactly why you did it, and so I'm probably anticipating the answer, but the use of the word totem. Yeah. Yeah, I thought about that. It's kind of conscripted, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I tend to associate it a lot with uh, with lineage and with family and with actual physical right. ancestors. And so it's a word that I'm very careful in my usage of. And I don't have any problem with people using personal totem because I think when they throw that word personal on the front, mm-hmm. it really creates a, a line of separation, which makes it a lot more acceptable to me personally. But it's a hard word to deal with, isn't it? It is. I'm glad you said that. It is. I think there are a lot of concepts that can be sticky to try to relate to people with absolutely no sense of a tribal context. Mm. It's yeah, that's true. Yeah. You're, you're, you know, that was my anticipated response, and the, the, what I read when I read the passages, what I was thinking was, you know, you're trying to explain this to people that have no context, right? And so even a context. Uh, that isn't perfect. It at least gives them something to grab hold of with language and with concept that that they can work with. That's kind of the compromise that has to be made sometimes, I suppose. That's well that? said. Yeah. So there. much. So much of what we do is those grabbing hold of those concepts. You have to have a hook into it. Indeed, language fails in many ways. It does. It sucks when you're a writer. <laughs> So besides your own fabulous book, which I really do, I really do like it a lot, is there, what other things would you kind of recommend for a reading list for someone who's just kind of getting started on their path? Hmm. What what stuff influenced you? Let's phrase it that way. I, I don't know that this is um, necessarily a beginning shamanism reference in terms of learning shamanism, but I think it's a really good resource for grounding into the experiences that um, moving into a shamanic path bring you. And it's um, How to Heal Toxic Thoughts by Sandra Ingerman. Oh, sure. Yep. That's a fabulous book. And it's a really quick read. It's it's not quick in the sense of, you know, if you do the exercises and progress through it as she asks you to, but it is deeply thorough in um, exercising the the things of your own psyche that aren't working when you're trying really hard to ingrain in a spiritual path. So that that's off the top of my head. That's a great one. That's a really good one. She is very popular for a reason. I think a lot of her stuff has, oh, yeah. really touches people deeply. She's fabulous. She's um she's really kind in in reading the Teen Spirit Guide to Modern Shamanism, and um, she's doing a spot on my blog next month. And she's she's just amazingly approachable and so real. Yeah, that's nice because that's not easy to be. You know, for she, some people, you know, she doesn't spe- have some to authors be. Especially, yeah, <laughs> she's earned it. I think not just her her writing, but her authenticity. I mean, it just reeks through everything she does. Right. I'm going to have to see about getting her on one of these nights, aren't we? <laughs> I think so, yeah. I mean, she's, I think she's pretty approachable. Yeah. Your your book, you covered a little, one of the, you've self-identified animist, and uh, you said your path is more of a druidic, is that is that what you would define it as now? Yes, yes. So how do you tackle that question about whether you're a pagan or not? Is that one that comes up often, or are you just... <sighs> 
Um, it, honestly, it doesn't come up often a lot. I wrote about this I, maybe two years ago in a Huffington article um, about how it, it's it's a catch-22 because I have people who come to me and they just seem so relieved that I, I live in a neighborhood like theirs. I look like everybody else in their life. And yet I do this thing that's really um, off the hook for them. And then I have other people who are like, you're what? I mean, they, you know, they, they automatically are, are assume that it's, you know, witchery and it's pagan and so forth. And um, I don't go out of my way to define myself for other people. I realize that sounds kind of like a cop out, but in terms of how I self-define, I'm absolutely pagan. Sure. That's great. You know? Yeah, no, I understand that a lot. It's a very, it's a very tough one, especially I it think is. on shamanic paths. As, as I've talked about, and then Sarah and I have talked about a couple of times, the uh, how do you even define it on a shamanic path is really strange mm-hmm. because sometimes, you know, I, I very much believe that all these spirits are individual and powerful spirits, and yet somehow have to reconcile with with some paths like Peruvian shamanism, where they tend to believe in one creator bringing right. forth everything sometimes you can create some real mental gymnastics just in your own head trying to get everything to work i agree oh it's it, that's interesting it's it's hard to help other people who have dilemmas like that and um, you know trying to get them flexible enough to realize the cosmology that's visiting them and yet you know still kind of say stay structured and have the boundaries that they need for it all to stay healthy and supportive for them it to to figure it out for themselves Mm, well put well put because that that's exactly what it is it's flexibility you know, you have to deal with, like we said, with expectations. You release expectations and deal with what's in front of you. And sometimes that means dealing with the spirit that's right there in front of you and, and not trying to figure out all the cosmology and a flow chart and mapping everything out. And It's true. It's just not going to work. It took me a long time to kind of deal with that. It's interesting because something that is coming up for me now I'm I'm a native North Carolinian, and I've always lived in the state and just moved to the location I'm in now about six years ago. And it's it's really thriving with just amazing land elders and, you know, native spirits and nature allies. And I've kind of just felt like I was getting into a groove with them when I began my safe study and I kind of had this feeling like um the the local spirits were like wait a minute we're right here you know <laughs> I mean they, you're it's like you said there it's a brain bender sometimes working in different cosmologies and really feeling drawn to you know cellular calls etheric calls who knows in other I guess cultural frameworks Mm -hmm. and yet still be extremely rooted and active and present in the one you're in yeah yeah and and then you add in the added struggles of being careful about the cultural appropriation the Mm -hmm. the people that have been there before you that yeah flexibility is key isn't it it is yeah that's and it's a constant challenge too, because you're always incorporating and learning. Whether as human beings, whether you you don't mean to take things, right? But right. you show something, and especially if it's something that is effective and it works its way into your psyche, and it, and it, it's it's just there. 
Right. Next thing you know, there it is. And so what do we do now? I anticipate that with with people and and with the own my own parameters of you know making things make sense in the way that bring meaning to what I'm doing. I didn't anticipate kind of having the local you know spirits being like, wait a minute, we're right here. You need to work with us. We're right here. Is there a, a particular way that they like to be interacted with, or is it the, the typical gamut of interactions? I think they want me to be more present outdoors, to, to literally be more ritualistic in how I am outdoors and engaging them through everything that I'm doing in my home space. And, you know, what a challenge. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's that's all. Can you tell me a little bit, since we're talking about the hometown sort of thing, tell me a little bit about your, your physical practice, because I know you do some, some work and there's a location that you work out of and that sort of thing. Why don't you go ahead and talk about that a little bit? Um, I have always worked predominantly out of my home. I have a devoted space in our home that is the salon that I work in. And um, it, it's always been a little tricky. It's it's changing. It, it's changed radically since I have children. I have five-year-olds. <laughs> and um, I'm finding that, you know, from a literal standpoint, it's not as easy to do that kind of work out of the home space, no matter what kind of devotion and, you know, sacred boundaries you've put in place. And I'm finding... Um, that I work less and less in individual sessions and more more with group work and classes and creating community support. You have a, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody, I know you've got a online class that's coming up pretty soon too. Would you oh, know? I do. Thank you for being so good at this. <laughs> um, I do. I am teaching an intro to neo-shamanism, and that's on purpose, because um, everybody cringes when you say that word, but an intro to neo-shamanism that kind of covers the uh, all of the history, the psychological ramifications, all these considerations that nobody talks about in weekend workshops. Nobody talks about this stuff. And I started getting lots of people who would go to weekend classes where they learned a journey, and they would come out just fried and frazzled. And so I developed this class as a way for people to kind of draw some meaning about shamanism itself and at a personal level, you know, what just happened, (laughs) what just happened when I took this class. So I have that coming up this Saturday and most of what I have through the rest of the summer are appearances, promotional appearances for the book. And then I've got to get my schedule hammered out for the rest of the year. That's a great way of uh, of doing it because by calling it neo shamanism, you're kind of putting it right in everybody's face. That awkward word, right? Right, exactly. We got to stop being plastic sooner or later. Yeah, you're right. You're right. There's, and it's quite the difference too. It's quite the struggle because we're some people are very genuine and very authentic about what they're doing. It's just not traditional. Exactly. And that's where Ken Day has done a tremendous amount of work, I think, to bring a lot of credibility in that bridge. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny when I went in to interview him, I, I will admit to not being sure how that interview was going to go off because I wasn't sure how <laughs> how much I he and I really it. had in common. But I was really pleased at how it came out and the, the things I that were said. I think he there. articulates his work and his perspective really well. I I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's you just never know, you know. And I, I can see that. Well, everybody approaches these things with their own ethics and their own morals. And I, I think that, you know, like for myself, I'm, I'm always very careful to describe that I'm trained in Peruvian shamanism, not that I'm a Peruvian shaman. And there's a line yeah. of distinction there for me that I try very hard not to cross. I don't want to advertise myself as something I'm not. However, that doesn't take away from any of my relationship right. with the spirits or my effectiveness in using those spirits to help you or anybody else do some healing work. I think that's very well said. It's, it's, it's quite the juggle, isn't it? It is. So, and it stays that way. I mean, that's, that's one thing I tell students right off the bat is these questions don't have answers. They, they don't ever stop being asked, and there's never a solid answer. It just keeps evolving. Exactly. Yeah, you turn around, you think... About the most I think I ever have is a is a bookmark in it where it's like, well, this huh. is okay for now. We'll get back to this question again later because you right? do you always get back to it, right? Yes, you do. It's 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 an important thing. That's another one of those things that's never talked about. I think is that there's a perception of a, you know the guru out there, especially when you're talking about mentors, that there's just some great guru that you're going to get to be, and then that's it. That the work stops. Well, <laughs> when, when, do, when does that happen? I but don't know. They're just, you know, but we're ready for it. We're ready to start having that dialogue. And, you know, one of the things that I'm working on that I hope to release in July is a repository of stories from people all over creation and different shamanic paths and experiences on life after shamanic healing. Oh, wow. We don't talk about that. Yeah. You know, and that's the one question I get asked the most is, what does it look like? How's it supposed to feel? What do I do? Right. And, you know, we don't, our dialogue doesn't stretch to that. You're healed. Poof, go home. Yeah. No, that's really interesting because uh, sometimes after the healing is where a lot of times the real work exactly. really kicks in, especially the, the grind, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's so, a great again, and intriguing you know, idea. We're all on our ways to being gurus, and we all have to talk about life after healing. Yeah, or even, well, I guess that goes into the premise that we came into the interview with. We were talking about the things that aren't talked about a lot, and and that's one of them. What happens after healing? What happens after initiation? How do you live your day-to-day -day yes. life after you've gone through this? You get home right. from this big initiation weekend and, and, or some other thing has happened. You're hopefully not struck by lightning, but okay. Say that's the circumstance. Now what? Right. Now what? Right. How do we live our day-to-day -day life after that? And those all tie together. I think so. And I, I think we're ready for that. Cause as I was kind of fleshing out how I would do this, I was thinking, you know, 10 years ago, people did not talk about soul healing. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, it sounds kind of silly now, but now at work, I'll hear somebody say the word Reiki. I work in state government. <laughs> and, I, you know, every now and then I'll hear somebody say, oh, she's a Reiki practitioner. So, you know, talking about somebody else in passing. And that never happened no. 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, so we're ready. We're, we're moving on. We're ready to have the dialogue about what happens next, what happens after, I think how you get up in the morning. 
I tend to think the spirits are pushing that a lot. You know, the last yeah. two or three years for me have been a lot of uh, the spirits are pushing. Things have to change. We cannot sustain the way we're living on Mother Earth. What's going to yeah. change, and how are we going to change it? So I think there, I think the spirits are pushing a lot of that conversation. It might start little at first, but it'll build. I think you're right. I mean, it's, and you, I mean, you can't resist. No, that just makes it worse, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Well, we've, believe it or not, spent the better part of an hour. So we'll have to start wrapping up here so I can let everybody go about their business. But whenever I have a guest on, I, I offer them the chance to make a prayer for everybody before we let the show go. So I'd like to give that opportunity to you to say a prayer to your guides, your spirits, whatever your heart is calling you to say to everybody out there that's listening. My heart calls for listeners to listen to their hearts, and and that's it, plain and simple. Whatever your path, whatever you feel like you need to do today in this moment that may be supported by the people around you, it may not be, it's that you follow your hearts. Very, very well put. Well, thank you again for joining me. And once again, for everybody, this is Kelly Harrell. She is the author of The Teen Spirit Guide to Modern Shamanism by Soul Rocks Books. And that is, that's out now, right? It is. It is. So everybody go out and pick up a copy, order it, make sure it's, uh, it appears on those sales charts and makes everybody happy. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, James. It's been awesome. All right. Have a great night. You too. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody else there listening. Uh, Thank you to the gods, the ancestors, and the spirits. Have a great night. Thank you.